0: This is Fine Music Radio, and in place of people of notes, which is broadcast usually at this time, we are presenting the penultimate lecture in our Fine Minds series, and it's called this week, A Social History of Indian Languages in South Africa, and it will be delivered by Professor Rajan Mistry. Here to introduce the lecture is Madei Raal.
1: Rajend Mistry is Professor of Linguistics at the University of Cape Town, where he holds a National Research Foundation Chair in Migration, Language and Social Change. He also holds an NRFA rating as a researcher in the field of linguistics. He is past head of the Linguistics Section at UCT, a past president of the Linguistic Society of Southern Africa, and a past co-editor of English Today. He is president of the upcoming International Conference of Linguistics to be held in Cape Town in 2018. Amongst his publications are Language in South Africa, World Englishes, and a Dictionary of South African Indian English. His most recent article on deracialization and a new class formation among young South Africans was published in the highly prestigious journal *Language*, the Journal of the Linguistics Society of America. He has undertaken research and conference visits and lectured widely in inter-India, the USA, the UK, the European Union, including Germany, Switzerland and Holland, the Caribbean and within Africa, Kenya, Tanzania and Cameroon.
0: My talk on a social history of Indian languages in South Africa requires two preliminary observations. The first is that far from being fixed in grammars and dictionaries, languages are flexible tools played out in everyday interaction. As such, they are cultural repositories and sensitive indicators of language change. My talk today will focus on one such case of language change amongst Indian South Africans under conditions of migration since the 19th century. The second preliminary is that this flexibility applies as much to communities of speakers of languages as to the languages themselves. That is to say. Although South Africa's history has promulgated falsely a view of people as being sharply divisible into population groups, totally different, with non-overlapping boundaries, this has never been the case prior to apartheid, during apartheid, and certainly not post-apartheid. In the context that I am concerned with, there are overlaps between groups labelled Indian in South Africa and groups labelled coloured. This overlap can be seen particularly outside the large cities, in smaller cities, large towns, and in rural areas. There's also a perception that Indian history in our country begins in 1860 with the first migration of indentured workers to the plantations of natal or what is now kwaZulu natal this too is something of a myth if we hold to this view then we would have to concede that the long lens of history shows that there were indians in south africa before the indians to understand this paradox one must turn to the history of dutch cape town and We know that the Dutch period began in the middle 17th century and within a decade or two, large numbers of Indians were coming in as slaves brought by the Dutch. It is well known that the Dutch slave holdings extended to Indonesia and Malaysia. Rather less well known, despite the best efforts of our historians like Nigel Worden at UCT is the fact that in the early period, slaves from the coastal parts of India predominated. As the Dutch trawled past the coastlines of India, they had Dutch factories and other holdings there and would bring slaves from the Bengal coast, the southern coast along Madras, from Sri Lanka and even south of Mumbai. It is estimated that at least one-third of the slave population of Cape Town of Indian origin. However, no particular sense of Indianness remains in the descendants of the slave communities and Indians in that community of slaves over centuries would have assimilated to other slaves who were more numerous from Indonesia, the so-called Malay community, and if there were Hindus amongst the Indians they would have converted to Islam. Also, Some would have converted to Christianity and would have fed into the community called Colored in Cape Town. While a historical sense of an Indianness in the slave communities of South Africa has long been forgotten, there are some reminders to the historian via language. There are several words that seem to me to have originated from Indian languages which passed first into Cape Dutch or Afrikaans and might even be known in English of the Cape. I will give three brief examples. The first is the word "roti," so pronounced, for what is more generally known as roti uh, in India, uh, in KwaZulu-Natal, and in many parts of the world where there is the influence of Indian cuisine. And "roti." is the way that a Bengali person, whether he's a slave or she is not, would pronounce the words. The sound change of or to oo is a regular feature of the Bengali language. And we know from historical records that there were indeed several Bengali slaves, some of whom played a prominent enough role in the 17th and 18th century to warrant a mention in more than one historical record. A second word that I've come across in Cape Town in Afrikaans is chupstil, spelled C-H-O-E-P-S-T-I-L, a hybrid term. The still means silent and quiet from Afrikaans or Dutch, but the chup is certainly of Indian provenance. Chup means to be silent, to be quiet, so it's a kind of duplication of the sense. And my understanding is that this is a word particularly favored by caregivers or nannies to children. And in the Cape Town slave context, one could imagine an exasperated nanny asking a child to be chupstill. The third word, briefly, is one that has defeated some of our best etymologists for a long time the citron fruit known as nachi. A nachi is a very South African term. Elsewhere, it might be known as a citron and so on. And for years, I wondered about its origins. And the closest etymology I can find is in a variety of Tamil spoken in Sri Lanka where the word naratai, meaning orange, in fact, if the truth be told, Small orange best fits the description we find in the Cape. So I'm pretty certain that a closer examination of the earlier records will help bring alive the slave contributions to Afrikaans beyond the already well known contributions of the so called Malay um, slaves from the East and the local indigenous but not enslaved. Khoi population. I now turn to the main subject of my talk, and that is Indian history in South Africa since 1860. To understand the large Indian presence in South Africa, and for over a century South Africa had the largest Indian population outside Asia, one must understand that the Abolition of slavery in the British Empire in the 1830s led to a labor crisis in many parts of the world. British planters faced bankruptcy in the Caribbeans and places like that. They also faced a labor problem in newly established colonies like Natal of the 1840s and Fiji of the 1870s. And the British solution to the problem of a labor shortage was to continue importing laborers, this time not fully enslaved, but some historians would say partially enslaved, from Asia, from the Philippines, Japan, and so on, but mainly from India. The word indenture refers to the contract signed between laborer in India and an employer and the indenture refers to the dent or serrated edges of the document which was cut into along a serrated edge with a pair of scissors and handed one each to the different parties. The indentured labor system had its heyday between 1840 and about 1920. Large numbers Close to a million of Indians moved initially to Mauritius to set up sugarcane fields there, and then to Guyana in South America, both Dutch and British, as well as French Guyana in South America. Then to Trinidad, Natal, 1860, and Fiji in 1875. So in this way, very similar transplanted communities of Indians can be found in far-flung places. The study of their history and their contributions to those, those societies is fairly well studied. However, the linguistic study of the changes wrought in the languages of the Indians themselves, their process of learning new languages like Creole languages of the Caribbean, French Creole and French itself in Mauritius, English and Zulu and so on in Natal is a relatively recent phase of linguistic study. Before I talk about the different communities that came to Natal in the period 1860 to 1911 as laborers, let us take a step back and look at the linguistics situation in India. India had and still has anything from 400 to 800 languages, depending on how one counts. And this counting runs afoul precisely of the process of the flexibility of languages, that one language may shade into another on the ground as so-called regional dialects, and that some people might give multiple names for the same variety of language and so on. So a rule of thumb would be halfway between 400 to 800, making India one of the most multilingual areas of the world, together with Nigeria with its 400 languages and Papua New Guinea with its 1,000 languages. Not all of these languages were transplanted. In other words, they were not... The languages that laborers spoke who moved into the colonies under the enticement of British recruiters fell into one of about seven or eight languages. Briefly, these were a variety of Hindi, which we will call Bhojpuri, in fact, uh, shortly, varieties of Tamil, Telugu, and in other parts of the world, varieties of Marathi. Indentured laborers made a long journey and were forced to undergo many cultural adaptations. Many of their familiar rules of association via caste and religion would have to be thrown by the wayside as people lived next to each other, firstly in depots up to three weeks in ports like Calcutta awaiting ship to take them to a new colony, then on the ships themselves with anything from a journey of six weeks to Mauritius to about double that to the Caribbean meant that one had to set aside the familiar comforts of everyday life and language. The process of migration is, right from the outset, a process of adaptation. Let us talk a little bit about the plantations of Natal. It is not fully appreciated just how massive a scale Natal's sugarcane production occurred. It is fair to say that this is one of the largest sugarcane plantation industries in the world. The Zairean born sociolinguist Salikoko Mufwene, who spent years in lecturing in Jamaica and then in the American South in Georgia on his first visit to KwaZulu-Natal remarked with astonishment at the enormous expanse of the sugar plantations. This is an era where the plantations have actually been cut back to make way for housing and for forests and so on. So this large-scale plantation life meant a rescaling of a number of practices of Indian laborers. They had to accustom themselves to people from different parts of India from which the British had recruited. They had to accustom themselves to indigenous Zulu-speaking people in the province as well as to life under the British and a few residue Dutch families who were still resident in Natal in the 19th century. What kind of language learning took place in under these circumstances? In order to understand this, one must realize that the recruitment of Indian laborers occurred not just in different parts of India but within the same parts covering a very wide expanse. For people from the north of India, that expanse covered over a thousand kilometers from Calcutta in the northeast, once the initial headquarters of the British from which recruiting started. But recruiting was not in the city so much as in the countryside, stretching a thousand miles into the northern interior as far as Delhi which became the British capital subsequently. Now, for an expanse of a thousand miles, we are talking about a distance as large as Cape Town to Durban, spanning several languages, albeit closely related one, and many dialects of these languages. In the plantations, however, The rescaling meant that people interacted on a regular basis with others who spoke languages and dialects that were just about intelligible, but quite significantly different. Under these circumstances, in the first generation, we can expect that children will reduce the amount of variation that they hear in their parents' language not just parents, but the older generation generally. And the children will stabilize a new variety made up of the more common forms, perhaps, perhaps the more prestigious forms, and so forth. We will see these processes in a little detail shortly, but let me talk about the different communities that came to Natal. The North Indian community that I used as my example is known as the Hindi-speaking community. But my research of decades ago established that it was not Hindi that was spoken in the plantation so much as the dialect or closely related language called Bhojpuri. And Bhojpuri was taken from North India from the states of modern Bihar and UP and related provinces to Mauritius, the Caribbean, Fiji, and Natal. The Nobel Prize laureate V.S. Naipaul in Trinidad speaks of his father's fluency in the Bhojpuri language. Recruitment also took place further south, in a province now called Andhra Pradesh and Telangana. This was the domain of the Telugu language and Telugu is a southern language quite different from Hindi known as a Dravidian language and it, although it is located in the south it is on the border of being in the south and central parts of India along the east coast. Further south is Tamil Nadu the province in which Tamil is the main language. And Natal is unusual amongst all the sugar colonies insofar as the vast majority of laborers spoke Tamil rather than Bhojpuri. So these were the, the three main languages of indenture, so to speak. Muslim people would have spoken either the local languages, Bhojpuri, Telugu, or Tamil, and in addition, Urdu, which is the learned cultural and religious language of Muslims in India. Allied to the arrival of 150,000 indentured Indians in the late 19th and early 20th centuries is another strand of population movement, this time of so-called passenger Indians, people who paid their own passage, people who arrived this time from the port of Mumbai on the west central parts of India on the coast. And these were speakers of Gujarati and Konkani. I will speak about these languages shortly. But it is important to note that Gujarati speakers in South Africa and Konkani speakers were not indentured laborers. They came as ordinary workers, some very poor and did menial work. Others came as relatively well-off traders, and there were even some fairly wealthy merchants who were used to a kind of maritime trade from india the east mauritius east africa and so forth one of the problems the linguistic problems facing indians on the plantations was indeed the problem of communication for they could not communicate initially with the zulus or the english overlords nor could they always speak to other indians so that people from the tamil speaking area did not generally Speak Hindi and vice versa. So there was some multilingualism on the plantations in the so called barracks or long houses which housed Indian families. There, there is evidence particularly of bilingualism between Tamil and Bhojpuri speakers in the early period. For communication with Zulus, a pidgin language called Fanagalo was already in existence just before Indians had arrived. And they found it a ready and quick way of communicating, not just with Zulu people, but sometimes with their employers and sometimes with other Indians with whom they did not share a common language. So Fanagalo, though much denigrated in South Africa and still somewhat denigrated in the mining context, had its role to play in the history of labor in this country. What I would like to do in the second part of my talk is to give a flavor of the different languages that came to South Africa, perhaps to share a word or two from these languages with my audience, and to perhaps attach some labels of prominent people to the different language groupings. So I also want to make a point about the linguistic changes that occurred in the different languages. And the theme is going to be that different processes occurred with the different languages depending on the size of the communities, the number of languages that they brought with them, and the kind of connection they subsequently had with India. One of the options given to indentured laborers was that they could, after serving two fixed terms of contracts, adding up to 10 years, they could be given a plot of land and remain in Natal, an option which most of them chose, although up to about 20% did choose the option of a small grant to return to their homeland. With the vast belt of A thousand kilometers between Calcutta and Delhi, which gave rise to about 50,000 workers on the plantations of Natal speaking Hindi, Bhojpuri and related languages, some degree of commonality developed within a generation and which stabilized. The variety called Hindi in Natal till today is not really Hindi. Its origins lie further east of the Hindi language and further west of the Bengali language in the vast Bhojpuri belt. But the Bhojpuri that evolved in the plantations of Natal is quite different from that which survives in India today. That is because there were speakers of several, there's a melting pot effect between speakers of closely related languages and dialects. The linguistic term for this is a koine, K-O-I-N-E, a Greek term for what happened in Greece many years ago as classical Greece gave way to a new variety, a more common variety, a common denominator variety of people who gathered at the sailing ports And so forth. So, Bhojburi in Natal is a koine, and in fact, its history is quite parallel with Mauritius, with Trinidad, with Guyana, and so on, where similar koine arose, reflecting the vast range of speakers and their origins. This is not true of Tamil. Tamil occurs in a large area, but a relatively circumscribed state, and the recruitment appears to be only from one of the four dialect areas of Tamil. Linguists talk of a northern dialect, an eastern dialect, which is the standard and in which the port of Madras can be found, a southern dialect adjacent to Sri Lanka eventually, and a western dialect. In correlating the copious ships lists kept by the British, one is able to see that four Natal, unlike the Bhojpuri case, for Tamil, the vast majority of speakers came from the northern dialect area, especially from the district called North Arkut or North Arkut in India, which was also the British headquarters. And so Tamil in Natal... Is not very well studied, mainly because the priests and other literati insist that when one studies, one studies a classical form of the language. There is a lot of prejudice against the ordinary colloquial forms, but if the truth be told, it is the ordinary colloquial forms that give a much better sense of where people came from, their adaptations to a new land, their sense of wonder at new human beings in a new land and not just human beings, but animals and plants and so and customs and so on. So Tamil gives us an example of one dialect predominating over others. We turn now to the western coast of India. Moving upwards from the south, we come to the area known as the Konkan coast. The Konkan means coastal flatlands adjacent to the highlands of the interior. The existence of Konkani as a language in South Africa is a well-kept secret. It is a language spoken widely in Cape Town but almost nowhere else, just a few residual speakers, relatives really, of the Cape Town settlers from the Konkan coast can be found in Johannesburg, Durban, and so on. So the Konkan coast lies south of Mumbai. So it is a thin strip of land, quite beautiful, heavily forested, but does not have much economic activity. Village life predominates till today in India. The Konkan migrants to Cape Town came in the late 19th century. They spoke Konkani, or as it is called in Cape Town, Kokni, K-O-K-N-I, not to be confused with the British working class speech, Kokni. And Konkani used to be considered a dialect of Marathi, and Marathi is the language found in the city of Mumbai and in the large state of Maharashtra. Konkani is unusual in Cape Town insofar as all its speakers are Muslim, whereas there is no distinction in India in terms of religion. Konkani speakers were never indentured. However, they worked very hard in the first generation, moved into small-scale shops and businesses in the second, and by the third and fourth generation, they were highly educated. Their migration story is different from that of the indentured Indians. Insofar as they were involved in what we call chain migration and circular migration, i.e. after a spell in Cape Town, they would return to India to recuperate from the rigors of labor in Cape Town, to reconnect with families, and on the next trip would bring along a younger sibling or so. And so there was a chain migration A chain of individuals from a family and a village and a strong sense of village identity is characteristic of the Konkani community to the extent that most people are able to tell you exactly which village their migrating ancestors came from there are village societies still in Cape Town and a strong consciousness of village life if India is prominent In Cape Town, then Cape Town is prominent in the Konkan coast too. On a recent field trip, we were quite astonished to see strong indications of the links between the Konkan and South Africa. Schools had been built with money sent from village societies in Cape Town. Water wells and other public works could also be found. In one school, there was a map, not of India, but of South Africa, with the labels entirely in Urdu. Now, lest the audience should think that this is a case of a community investing more in its homeland, or its former homeland, rather than in its city of residence, namely Cape Town, let me hasten to point out that Konkani speakers have always been firmly politically conscious in South Africa. They have done fundraising for a transformed democratic South Africa and they are involved together with the larger Muslim population in Cape Town in fundraising for the welfare of the indigent and are heavily involved in public feeding schemes and the like. Linguistically, Konkani is different from Bhojpuri and Tamil in Cape Town, in so far as it appears that different village dialects still survive a hundred and twenty-five years on, and this is not the case in KZN. For reasons of time, I shall hasten on to the last of the languages I want to talk about, and this is Gujarati. Gujarati is spoken in the state of Gujarat and in Mumbai. So, Gujarat is a state on the western side of India, north of Mumbai. So it's north of cent- center. It is a northern language derived from Sanskrit, like Konkani and like Hindi and Bhojpuri, but unlike Tamil and Telugu. Gujarati migrants came as free passengers. And like the Konkani community, Invested first in small-scale family business and then upscale to education and larger business. Gujarati deserves much more attention in South Africa than it has received in the past. After all, it was a language of Mahatma Gandhi who came to South Africa in 1893 and stayed on for 21 years. More than that, it was the language that the main language of the newspaper he started in 1903, Indian Opinion, which ran up to the 1960s, long after he had left South Africa, long after his death, and run by his second son, Manilal, in Durban. Indian Opinion was a multilingual newspaper newspaper that used Gujarati as its main language, had sec and English as its second language, and had sections in Hindi and Tamil for a few years. Gandhi wrote his autobiography in India in Gujarati. It was a political act. He put his money where his multilingual mouth was, and that is he refused to write in English, but he had a very competent secretary, Mahadev Desai, who translated Satyagraha in South Africa, one of the classics to emanate from KwaZulu-Natal, South Africa. I would like to suggest that we need to pay attention to Gandhi's style. He might well be a pioneer of the genre of political prose writing. The first anti-colonial classic, a short piece called Hind Swaraj or Indian Self-Rule, was written on board ship between Southampton and Cape Town in 1909. Gandhi is well known for his simple lifestyle and I believe that this is mimicked by his simple, non-rhetorical, non-ornate literary style. So it would give me some pleasure if we are able to demonstrate via close linguistic analysis that the genre of Gujarati political prose started out in Africa. There were others who wrote too. There was a rival newspaper to the Indian Opinion called The Indian Views run by the Meer family, which also used Gujarati extensively, but it appears to me that it used a different dialect of Gujarati rather than the standard found in the Indian Opinion. More than that, Gujarati is distinguished in South Africa by the large number of people who write poems, short pieces for annual magazines, and so on. So the history of literary production in Gujarati is still to be uncovered. Interestingly enough, while people are familiar with their districts of origin, unlike the Konkni case, the village of origin is not so important as the district. So the Gujarati community still speaks varieties that are associated with the districts of Surat, so-called Surti, or the district of Kathiawad, so- so-called so Kathiawadi, and so on. So we have four different processes occurring in the same country in terms of differential patterns of settlement and migration. Bhojpuri a koine, Tamil, a language that selects from one majority dialect alone, Kokni, in which a kind of village presence predominates, and Gujarati, in which the dialect or variety associated with two large districts seems to predominate. In conclusion, these languages might not be fully familiar to readers. Let me listeners let me give some hints about how to connect these with people you might know and terms you might know for bhojpuri words like roti and dhania are indeed the sources from which South Africans know the this flat unleavened bread roti and coriander or dhania for Tamil the word mango originally comes from Tamil, mankai, although it wasn't borrowed in South Africa, but in the British period from India itself, and then Britain, and then internationally. Locally, the, fest- the religious festival, Kavadi, comes from Tamil. For Konkani, Konkani, I said, is a well-kept secret, so its words are not very public, but one product sold in pick and pay stores outside the Konkani community of Cape Town is barishap, or a kind of fennel. For Gujarati, the word I can think of is bani chow, which doesn't come from Gujarati but refers to the banya, which in Gujarati is varnia, a caste of merchants, meaning the popular takeaway meal served by Gujarati restauranters. This is a quick and cheap meal for the working class of the streets of Durban since the 1940s or so. Finally, in terms of names, for Bhojpuri, the surnames Maharaj and Singh are very common. Think of Mack Maharaj and Naren Singh politicians. For Telugu, Reddy was was a very common and exclusive Telugu name. It no longer is because it's shared with Tamil. For Tamil itself, Naidu and Govender are very prominent names. Think of politician Jay Naidu and author Ronnie Govender. For Konkani, the suffix K-E-R is very prominent in Cape Town, not so well known outside South Africa Cape Town boasts of Palikars, Kajikars, Hanikars, and so on. And the K-E-R suffix, like the K-A-R in Tendulkar, who speak of Marathi, a closely related language, means the distant village of origin. And similar phenomenon with Gujarati, the Yah suffix in Gujarati speaks of the village of origin. So you would have Valodia, Palsania and Randeria, and famous politicians of Gujarati background in South Africa would be Praveen Gordon, Fatima Chauhan, and Dalla Omar. I thank you for your attention. <laughs>
2: Yeah.
3: कसम साकिया तुझको दरिया दिली की कसम साकिया मुस्तकिल दौर पर दौर चलता रहे रानों कदा यूं ही रहे रानों के मैं रहे एक गिरता रहे एक संभलता रहे रोनों के मैं कदा यूं ही बढ़ती रहे एक गिरता रहे एक संभलता रहे। the head
2: i Yeah.